Father, once again, I thank you for today. I thank you uh, for all the, all the families and the kids. I, I, I know that it's difficult uh, to sometimes uh, bring kids to church, and I thank you for the sacrifice uh, these families have made so that they could be here. Join with us today on this VBS Sunday. Thank you uh, for the kids on their talent and singing uh, and being a blessing to us in that way. And now, Lord, I pray that you'd open our, our ears and our hearts to hear what you have for us in your word this morning, uh, that we may bear uh, fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of childhood's most favorite games is one in which several kids go hide in different locations while another kid goes looking for them called what? Hide and seek. Okay, so some of you are awake and paying attention. <laughs> some people never really quite grow out of their affection for that game they played as kids, but it's not as productive as when they were kids. They carry it over into criminal activity. Here are my favorite dumbest attempts at hiding while committing crimes. In Johannesburg, South Africa, a police officer responded to a burglary report and sat down on the homeowner's couch to take a statement from the homeowner. During the course of their conversation, the homeowner discovered the thief still there, hiding underneath the couch with his head right behind the officer's feet. He quickly notified the officer who jumped off the couch and arrested the thief who handed over the jewelry and a digital camera he had stolen. Talk about a quick arrest. He didn't really have to do much to do that. When a man escaped from a jail in Waco, Texas, his escape took him to Baylor University, where his goal to change out of his orange jumpsuit into a different set of clothes drove him to break into the first building on campus he saw. That building just so happened to be the Fine Arts Building, where Baker changed into a 19th century green wool outfit and rubber boots, which he thought would make him less conspicuous to authorities. When Baker was spotted on the street in his new so-called inconspicuous outfit, an arresting officer described him as looking like a leprechaun. As amusing as those two were, this last one's my favorite. Two men decided they wanted to burglarize an apartment in Iowa. Usually, if that's the plan, would-be thieves would wear a ski mask, another type of mask, or some other disguise to cover their faces to conceal their identities, right? These two guys decided the best way of hiding their identities was to simply scribble mustaches and other facial marks on their faces with Sharpies. They were spotted in their vehicle near the scene of the crime and arrested shortly after. As absurd as these attempts at hiding were, there is perhaps an attempt at hiding that is the most ridiculous of all, and that is of a man who tried hiding and running away from God. This week, we had the blessing once again of enjoying Bible lessons and songs from local missionary Mr. Don Jackson, who taught us lessons that agents of truth like how I worked that in there, need to know using real-life examples from the Bible. One of the examples Mr. Don, as he was known to the VBSers, gave was the story of Jonah 
in the Old Testament. So even though I've been preaching in a Gospel of John series lately, as a connection to this past week of VBS, as it's VBS Sunday in our closing program, I wanted to give a, a message on this well-known account of this prophet in the Old Testament who tried to hide and run away from God. Hopefully by the end of this message, we'll see how this connects to our lives today and what change it can bring. Before we get to our specific verses this morning, I want to give a summary and a bit of a background uh, that, that leads up to these verses to give us a better understanding. First, a bit of historical background, but don't fall asleep on me yet, okay? Stick with me through this historical background. For anyone who doesn't know, after the kingdom reigns of King David and his son King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was split into the northern kingdom, which continued to be called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which uh, took on the new name of Judah, named after the one tribe of Judah. Jonah's prophetic ministry took place sometime during the king Jeroboam II's 40-year reign between 793 BC and 753 BC. So we're talking about 700 years before the birth of Christ. Now this isn't useless information. This will be very important to, uh, to Jonah's reasoning for his actions, as we'll see in a little bit. For starters, a couple of other Old Testament prophets named Hosea and Amos, you might recognize those, those are other Old Testament books, Hosea and Amos, they were also giving messages from God to the northern kingdom of Israel during the early part of Jonah's ministry. These prophetic messages were God's warning that if Israel didn't stop worshiping pagan deities and doing the horrible, awful things to each other that were in line with those pagan beliefs, God was going to send the pagan nation of Assyria, keep that in mind, Assyria, to come and destroy them. Even though these prophecies were about events that would happen in the not-too-distant future, those messages no doubt would have been known by the time Jonah is visited by God. So, with that in mind, if you brought your Bibles with you, please turn to Jonah chapter 1. It's in the Old Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, that's, that's okay. Turn to a neighbor, ask them, or look it up in the table of contents. There's no shame in that. If you, brought, if you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's, that's also okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. You can also turn uh, to Jonah chapter 1, or you can look it up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. Uh, Jonah chapter 1. We're not going to, I'm not going to read through all these verses at the beginning here. But we're just going to skim over the, this first part. So you'll see in the first two verses that God visits Jonah and tells him to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of that nation of Assyria that I was just talking about. This is why that was important. God visits Jonah and tells them to go to Nineveh and warn them about their wickedness. Now, what's the huge difference between Jonah's mission as a prophet and the missions of Hosea and Amos? Whereas Hosea and Amos were called to prophesy to Israel and God's people, Jonah was called to go to Nineveh which was, the, again, the capital city of the pagan nation of Assyria that I just mentioned. Talk about a home field advantage versus a way field advantage. 
Not that Hosea and Amos received cheers from their home team of Israel when they were warning them to knock off their actions or face destruction, but Jonah was being called to a completely pagan nation, a stranger nation separate from his native country of Israel. At the point of God calling Jonah to go warn Nineveh and Assyria of their wickedness, they were in a lull in terms of world history, in terms of empire expansion due to infighting. But not too long before this, Assyria was known as just a brutal nation in conquering other areas and people groups. In fact, one biblical scholar referred to Nineveh as the capital of one of the most, uh, one of the most cruelest, vilest, most powerful, and most idolatrous empires in the world. Of the kings who ruled before, one of the kings who ruled before Jonah's time boasted about not only smothering areas with the blood of, the, of those they slaughtered, but also flaying, mutilating, mutilating, and burning his captives alive. This was a brutal place, ruled by brutal leaders. Words don't describe the extreme evil and sheer cruelty Assyria and its capital city of Nineveh embodied. What's Jonah's response to God calling him to waltz straight into that city and start declaring how wrong they are and that they'd better repent or face destruction by the Hebrew God? Well, what does verse 2 tell us? Verse 2 tells us that he runs pell-mell to try to get as far away from Assyria as possible. We can understand why he does this now. Not only was this literally running into a den of evil to paint a target on yourself and say, hey, over here, come kill me. But there was something else. This is why I mentioned Hosea and Amos giving their prophecies that Jonah would have known. Hosea and Amos were prophesying that even though Assyria was in a lull in terms of their expansion, they would rise up again in the not-too-distant future and attack and conquer and destroy Israel in the not-too-distant future. This is what Jonah had in his mind. So let's put ourselves in Jonah's shoes here, or his sandals. Here was this nation that not only was indescribably evil, but if Jonah was obedient to God, went to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh to call them to repent or face God's destruction, and they, by some miracle, actually listened to him, and avoided, the, uh, avoided destruction, then Jonah would be what? He would be aiding and abetting Nineveh, making good on Hosea and Amos' prophecies about Assyria destroying his own home country. So even though Jonah still disobeyed God and tried to get away and hide from God's presence, as verse 2 says, by getting as far away from his calling as possible, we can still get why he did it. Now one might wonder, yeah, so why would God give Nineveh a chance to repent, avoid destruction, and then come back and destroy his own people? Two reasons. And both have to do with his sovereignty, which is a big word to mean that God has complete control and a plan 
over everything that happens in this universe, world, and every one of our individual lives. Number one, God was the one who had given Hosea and Amos those prophecies in the first place and was still in control. If his plan included that his people repented of their evil, he was powerful enough to turn away Nineveh, even if Nineveh was also spared through its repentance. And number two, God is a God of mercy. God is a God of mercy. And no one is too far gone for his grace and salvation. He was giving both his own people and this thoroughly evil nation the chance to repent and be spared from his destruction. So, Jonah gets on a boat to Tarshish, and he starts heading there with a bunch of other people who worship false gods and their idols. But God is not going to let Jonah get away with what he's doing. He's not going to let Jonah get away with a shirking off of what he had personally visited him and called him to do. So verse 4 tells us that he sends a devastating storm on the water, so much so that the rest of the crew start throwing cargo overboard in a desperate attempt to save themselves. They start crying out to their pagan deities. Where is Jonah during this whole time? Everybody is a complete wreck up on deck. And where is Jonah? He's under deck taking a nap. There are men around Jonah that are desperate for their very lives. And Jonah's apathy leads him to simply ignore the situation and fall asleep. The captain of the ship knows that every option must be exhausted to save themselves. So he goes and wakes Jonah up and tells him to cry out to his, to his God. When it's found out that it's Jonah's fault that they are now fearing for their lives, again, through God's sovereignty, they demand more information from Jonah. And that's what brings us to our passage this morning. So Jonah chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verses 9 through 10. And we read this. He said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, as if the storm wasn't frightening enough. And they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because what? He had told them that. Apparently, when Jonah got on board the ship, he already told them he was fleeing from his deity's call on him. And this is why I chose these two verses specifically for this morning's passage. What does verse 10 tell us? That Jonah knew full well what he was doing. He was fleeing from God's presence, or at least he was trying to. When you ask kids this question, can you run away from God's presence any kid would respond with an emphatic, no, right? We'll come back to this in a few minutes. Now that the crew members are putting two and two together, they realize that this storm is not just a storm that they have to cry out to a deity to stop, but it's being caused by Jonah's God in the first place. Now they're really scared, as any one of us would be. When the crew members find out from Jonah that the only way to stop the storm is to throw him overboard, 
These pagan men don't want to just do that. They still have hearts. They didn't want to just toss a guy overboard. They try to fight against the storm, but upon finding that hopeless, and with their own death staring them in the face, the crew does something very interesting. They now turn to Jonah's God, the one true God, and tell him, look, we know that throwing this guy overboard is the only way to save ourselves, but don't count his death toward us, nor put his blood on our hands. With that, they throw Jonah overboard. The storm immediately stops. And even though Jonah wasn't being much of the missionary he was supposed to be, because of, because of God, the men started believing in Yahweh, the one true God. Meanwhile, for those who know how the story goes, verse 17 tells us that God specially tapped on the shoulder of a great fish, it describes, to swallow Jonah. Jonah was then in that fish's stomach for three days and three nights. Now, scholars have scoffed at this concept, that of a man being swallowed whole by a giant fish and staying alive in its stomach for three days and nights. Biblical scholars differ on their analysis of what this could have been. The Hebrew word that's used here in verse 17 was generally the word that was used for any sea creature, and it's impossible to determine whether this was a mammal or a fish. Sperm whales, for instance, have been known to swallow whole, incredibly large objects, including a 15-foot shark. On the other hand, whale sharks, which are fish, have been recorded as swallowing men whole, and they've been discovered alive in their stomachs. Furthermore, what does the text say? That God specially appointed this creature to swallow Jonah. It could have been a normal creature that we have scientific record of, or it could have even been a creature perhaps left over from when sea dinosaurs were more prevalent that God kept surviving and safe until this appointed time and purpose. Whatever it was, as noted by one biblical scholar, this was a miracle what happened here. This was a miracle, and there's no reason to disbelieve that this literally and historically happened. We know from the rest of this book that Jonah prayed for God to deliver him, ended up getting vomited out by the fish, uh, by, by the sea creature three days later, and he's given a second chance, a second chance to make good on the calling God had given him by going and preaching through the streets of Nineveh. They miraculously repent of their, of their evil and their paganism. They put their faith in the one true God and they're spared from his destruction. Even the king of Nineveh issued a proclamation that the whole city should cry out to Jonah's God. So it's just an incredible story, isn't it? You would think Jonah would be amazed at what transpired, especially considering how evil we knew Nineveh was. But Jonah was angry instead. We know from the beginning of this message why he was so angry. Now that Nineveh was spared, they could be primed after only a short while to bring the destruction God had given as a prophecy to Jonah's home country. But again, in processing through everything through the lens of God's sovereignty, was that Jonah's problem or responsibility 
in the first place? Something he needed to come up with a, with a solution to? No. It was always God's in his sovereignty. And that's what we need to see here. The very last verse of this book reveals the point in understanding the entire book. So flip forward to chapter 4, verse 11. We read this, the very last verse of the book. Should I, this is God speaking, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Since it's God's sovereignty and his plan and his compassion, it had nothing to do with Jonah or what he wanted or any solution he thought he needed to come up with to fix God's mess that, that he apparently thought had happened. God had called Jonah to do what he wanted, and in faith, Jonah was simply to do what God had called him to do and leave the rest of how it all, how it all was going to work out up to God. As one biblical scholar points out, Jonah is only one of four prophets that Jesus himself references in the Gospels. When the unbelieving Pharisees demanded one more crazy miracle that would dash all doubt in him being a God and the messianic king, Jesus replies with this. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves a sign. And so, no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. Now, what is he getting at here? For just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. He uses Jonah's experience, applies it to himself, and says, that is going to be the last sign you see. And that's going to be whether or not you put your faith in me. What's the crazy miracle that should dash all doubt in Jesus as God and the messianic king? That just as Jonah was lost to the sea creature for three days and nights, Jesus would be lost to the grave. Or a euphemism for death for what he says is three days and nights. As one biblical scholar points out, Jewish understanding would regard even a portion of a day as a day and night. So Jesus dying on a Passover Friday, laying in the tomb, staying in the tomb for all of Sabbath, Saturday, and night, and then being in the grave until Sunday morning could also be rendered in the Jewish understanding as three days and nights. Just as Jonah came bursting out of the sea creature alive and well, although smelling a lot worse than when he entered the fish, Jesus would come bursting out of physical death and the grave alive and well. But was it enough for the people of Nineveh to simply believe in the existence of the one true God? What were they supposed to do? What did they need to do to be spared from the judgment of destruction? What did they need to do beyond just believing in Jonah's God? They needed to repent, right? Repent of their sin. Jesus references this repentance to the Pharisees in his conversation with them when he says, The men of Nineveh, 
will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And of course, he's referring to himself as that something greater than Jonah. In other words, the people of Nineveh did what the religious leaders opposing Jesus would not do. They saw the gravity of their sin and what their sin earned them, and then they repented of that sin. It was simple as that. And as Jesus says, everyone must listen to him, for he is much greater than the prophet Jonah. Believe his words, trust in his death and resurrection for salvation, and do what the people of Nineveh did in response to hearing Jonah's words, which is repent. Much like God's call to Jonah was a tough one, the call to following Jesus is a tough one. Repenting and turning to Jesus for salvation from sin and salvation of one's soul is a tough calling. Why? It requires humility. It requires humility and knowing that God's word is clear that everyone is a sinner. Everyone's sin separates them from God and nothing anyone can do can change that. No amount of good works, no amount of sacraments or rituals done, and no amount of perceived inherent goodness can change that. It doesn't matter if you come up to me and say, I think I'm the best person in the world. That doesn't matter. It requires that one comes to grips with the truth that God requires payment of death for one's sin. And for humans created in his image, that's what's described in the Bible as the second death or eternal torment in hell. It requires that one knows that God loves humanity too much to just let them get what we all deserve, but made a way, one way, for us to be forgiven of our sin and be restored to him, thus granting us eternal life in heaven with him one day. Jesus' death as sinless God, the second member of the Trinity, paid our sin death debt for us. But in order for it to be effectual for us, we need to personally accept it for ourselves. We need to recognize that Jesus paid for our sin as a substitute for us. Repent or turn from that sin and turn to following Jesus as king over the rest of our lives. Again, much like God's call to Jonah was a tough one, the call to following Jesus is a tough one. It's not easy, nor was it ever supposed to be easy. And anyone who thinks it's supposed to be easy has not been reading this. (laughs) But following God's call to repent and make Jesus king is the absolute, hands down, best, most important, and most fulfilling call one could ever make. Are you going to run from God's call to repent and accept Jesus as your Savior and King, just like Jonah did from God's call in his life? Or are you going to run towards it, since it's the only hope for salvation for any one of us, including the guy standing up here? After we've we've answered God's call to repent and turn to him, based on Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf, there are still going to be some things in our lives that God has called us to that are just simply tough. Loving a spouse or other family member who doesn't deserve it. Working a job that is belittling 
to our humanity, working several jobs to make ends meet, telling others about Jesus who just don't want to hear about it and even persecute you for it, overcoming temptation, and overall, just living the the God-pleasing life Jesus has called us to. And just like Jonah should have done, we have to take a step back from our lives and look at all of it through the lens of God's sovereignty. Here's a very important truth that every single one of us has to come to grips with and make the foundation of our life. God does not exist to serve us, no matter how much we want him to, and just be that vending machine in the sky. God does not exist to serve us. We exist to serve God. Since he's God, it's his standards and his requirements he expects us to follow, and it's only his plan for the salvation of our souls. When tough things happen, it's not reason to rage against God or even question his existence. Rather, if we look at life, we take a step back and we look at everything in life, through God's sovereignty, we'll see that every tough time and every trial is purposeful. There is a reason to all of it. We may not see it or understand it, this side of heaven, but we can know the one who does understand and see all of it and has his perfect plan. And if we see everything that way, you know what that does? It even turns the tough times and the trials and the times of heartbreak into opportunities, believe it or not, for joy. For we know God is using them in our lives to grow our faith and and, and grow us as human beings and reveal more of himself to us. If we've surrendered ourselves to God's call to repent and make Jesus our Savior and King, we get all of heaven opened up for us. All of heaven's blessings opened up to us and all of God given to us. We are adopted as one of God's children who he will take care of, protect, provide for, comfort, convict where needed, strengthen, and guide through this difficult life. We are indwelt by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to remind us of who we are as God's children, empower us to live the life God has called us to, and grow faith and the fruits of the Spirit within us to live that life. One of those fruits is joy. That no matter what trial we go through, no matter what tough time or trouble we go through. That's what the Apostle James gets at when he says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind, heartbreak, trials, when any of these tough times come your way, consider an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete needing nothing. This perfect and complete state is a reference to a spiritual maturity that can see things and deal with them the way that God wants us to. This is a great, a great reminder for all of us, no matter what season of faith or life we're in. 
Unlike Jonah's ministry as recorded in this book, may we always view every season of our lives through God's sovereignty. If we have never been restored to God like the Ninevites were before they believed Jonah's message, may we repent and take Jesus as our Savior and King today, letting that give us the hope of eternity, becoming a child of God, and finding our peace in God's plan in our lives. If we did at one point, but kind of walked away for a while, let this be the day we return to him and truly seek him and live for him with the rest of our lives. And if we have made this surrender to God through Jesus, no matter where we are in our faith growth, may our faith be strengthened in the Holy Spirit as we look to God's sovereignty in our lives and for all of eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this clear and obvious uh, story that you have for us in the Old Testament of this uh, person who was supposed to be a man of God, but ran away from you instead. And I pray that if there's anybody here who has been running from you their whole life, that today will be the day they stop and they repent and they turn to you and take you as their Savior and King. And if there's some, anybody here who had done that at one point in their lives, they'd surrender their lives to you through the death and resurrection of Jesus, but they've since walked away from you, I pray that you turn them back to you today as well. And for any one of us who has surrendered our lives, taking the death and resurrection of Jesus as our only hope of eternity spent with you, I pray that you continue to grow and stretch our faith, remind us of who you are and what place your sovereignty has in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.